Go Birds Radio, presented by the Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app. Official sportsbook of the real Philly fan. What's going on? It's Elliot Shore Parks for my friends at Window Nation. And if you've had enough of your windows keeping the house chilly, then fight the February cold with Window Nation. Right now, replace your windows and save big with 50% off all window styles, plus zero down, zero interest, and no payments for 24 months. With proven quality and service, it's no wonder thousands have trusted Window Nation. Don't miss out. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com to schedule your free in-home estimate. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode of BGN Radio is brought to you by Clip It, the hottest app that is out there. Watch TV, make clips, and share. For more information, check them out at clipit.tv or check them on Twitter at clipittv. Michael Kiss. Hey, somebody has run out on the field. Some goofball in a hand. And Benjamin Solak. I know it's a big night when he asked for honey. He said he wants honey. It's the Kiss and Solak Show. Man, I love those guys. Right here on BGN Radio. You are flying high with the Kissed and Solak show presented to you by the fine folks at BGN Radio. You will notice these are not the dulcet tones of your usual host, Michael Kissed. Mike's got a family thing going on tonight. Nothing to worry about. Everything is good. He just wasn't able to make the time. So it is Benjamin Solak of Bleeding Green Nation and NDT Scouting flying solo. The second and, of course, lesser half of the Kissed and Solak show. Sitting in the host chair tonight, but it's quite well. I am joined very excited by this guest, Matt Waldman of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, one of the leading minds as far as draft and fantasy football coverage. He has his his, uh, his handle in, in a little bit of everything, but we're very excited to have Matt Waldman on, have the opportunity to talk with him about some of these players. So Matt, thank you for joining me. I want you to start and just introduce yourself, uh, let the listeners know if they may not be familiar with the, with your work, why it's so valuable, where they might be able to find it, just give us the lowdown. Sure. Uh, you know, I've been doing the Rookie Scouting Portfolio for about 13 years now. You can find it at www.mattwaldmanrsp.com. That's my site. You can also find my YouTube channel, the RSP Film Room, and also find me on Twitter, at Matt Waldman. And all those places, you can find video clips where I profile prospects, a quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end. That's what I specialize in. And for the past 13 years, I've been honing a process that I developed based in my, um, you know, my past life and operations management where I was working on quality processes and, and implementing those, you know, company-wide at the organization that I worked at and different types of training that I received um, in best practices. And I thought I'd apply that to football because I was a big fantasy football fan and, you know, big football fan in general. And I thought it would be fun to do a little bit of you know, a little bit of work and maybe experiment with that some. And that experiment turned into a full-time job. 
um, over the course of some years. And it's, and it's something where, you know, I show everyone my process. It's very transparent. Um, so I have a, you know, I have a glossary of everything that's defined. I, I then also have, you know, two styles of grading. One's more for breadth of talent. One's for depth of talent. The breadth is kind of to say, hey, you know, here's the basic skills we're looking for out of the position across the board in the NFL. Everything that you could possibly, you know, consider that, say, let's say if we're looking at wide receiver, what the, you know, from a slot receiver to a split end to a flanker, you know, these are the types of skills that, that NFL teams are looking for. And then depth of talent is more about how talented they are in those areas and where I can add some projection bonuses to see whether they improve or not. And all of this information I'm sharing with you is all defined. It's all available in my book. And then I rank these players in this book that comes out annually every April 1st. And so you get rankings based on, you know, based on their position. You get three-year rankings that I keep up to date with so that you can get a chance to see where the, you know, this class ranks compared to where I ranked the previous classes. Um, you'll get, um, you know, overrated, underrated discussion, discussion about the draft class in general and previous draft classes in terms of the position and how the, how the league's looking at the position and how things may be changing from that regard and you get full profiles and it's all based on you know all the work that I do year long and I show all of that so the, the publication this year is a 434 page draft guide it's bookmarked in a PDF format and then I show all my work which is again the you know the checklist that I do and I used to do play by play transcription of everything that I saw and I still did a fair amount of that this year so it turned out to be a 1734 page draft guide um and i'll be cutting back on the amount i do that you know of, of the work that i do that with but it's something that you know was very helpful for me to develop um you know a knowledge base of the game and continue to increase that and then use it as a nice exercise to make sure that i'm being consistent with what i need to notice for the way i define all the criteria I grade by. And that's why I'll continue doing it, but just not quite as much because it's starting to eat into the time that I can have to do other things that I want to bring to my readers down the line. Yeah, and also, you know, like eat and breathe and sleep and other casual human needs that, that you tend to uh, ignore during the uh, the height of the season. Yeah, you know, it's it's been a crazy process. You know, I mean, when I started doing this, like I said, I was in management. I was a director at a company. And I had done some part-time writing, and I had always had an interest in writing and done some work for a variety of corporations as a freelancer and then some work in a journalism field, you know, as kind of more of a freelancer. And then that kind of evolved where I was still doing fantasy football writing and doing the RSP, and I moved over and was writing at the University of Georgia at their um, Terry College of Business as a, as a features writer um, for the past 10 years and an editor of their, uh, as associate editor for their magazine. Um, and so I was doing that as a full-time job while I was doing the fantasy work as well as doing the RSP and juggling a lot of that. This, I, for the past, this is the second, this is the, next year will be the third year I'll be doing this full-time, but I've been doing this full-time for two years now. Um, and it's still a fair bit of work, um, you know, especially when you're managing a you know a YouTube channel and, and doing a lot and putting a lot of information out there where you have, you know, I think I have at this point probably over 260 videos out there um, with that. And so, you know, you 
it's one of those things where the the workload you, you just you know as you grow a business you you have to learn how to manage that and learn how to manage it in a way that's going to be um, useful for for your readers as well as useful for your time and and is for your own time and that's something that you know this past couple of years have been a nice adjustment to be able to do that so I actually I've actually gotten sleep this year more than I ever have it's just the now it's that's at the point where it's like can I start work can I not take six weeks off from my workout schedule so yeah. that I can, <laughs> yeah, you know, so that I can do this. But it's a, uh, you know, I, you know, ten years ago, Benjamin. I mean, it was like there were days that I felt like, okay, so I, I would go, you know, I'd go three, four hours sleep for six days, and then I'd crash for one day out of the week for you know eight or nine hours or twelve hours, and you just, you know, when you're younger, it's a little easier to do. But I'm forty eight years old, and at this point, it's like, you know, I pull an all nighter, and I feel it pretty hard compared to what I used to about ten years ago. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear, uh, you know, things have leveled out as far as the work-life balance goes. It makes me happy. But the uh, the RSP, if it wasn't clear from Matt's explanation, something for everybody. Uh, it doesn't matter what you're looking at, what you like to do, uh, how you focus on, on enjoying this wonderful game. There's something for you in there. Cannot recommend it enough as far as a publication you get your hands on year by year. Let's talk a little bit about some of the unique evals that went into it this year. Because Mike and I were going through it. He had some that, were, that stuck out to him i had some that stuck out to me i want to start with a young man who i interesting to me for philadelphia i'm just interested where he goes in general uh, what ends up with him that's chris warren the third who's a, a little running back kind of turned tight end hybrid weird player for a texas team that that couldn't really figure out how to get its backfield situated they came into the combine 6 250 right a huge huge player massive 32 inch arm 77 inch wingspan these are huge numbers uh for for a guy who's allegedly a running back in the RSP, he was a it was a difficult evaluation for you. That's what you call him, a difficult eval. I'm curious what it was when you were breaking down a guy who never really panned out for the Longhorns. What made it difficult? What 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 could he look like at the next level? Unpack Chris Warren a little bit for me. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's part of that size combination because when he came into the league, now this guy is the son of you know of Chris Warren, who is. Well, a running back for the Seattle Seahawks back in the 90s who was a terrific running NFL running back and you know not quite as big as his son um, his son came into a lot of you know hoopla he and Dante Foreman worked to Dante Foreman worked together for periods and Foreman had a huge game against Texas Tech that was that earned him headlines as a freshman and what's what's interesting about him is that when when you watch him on tape, you, when you watch any type of player on tape, one of the things that, that's interesting to see is you're, you're looking for the skill sets, but you're also looking at athletic ability. And, when you're, and one of the things that you want to be able to do is marry up that athletic ability that you see on tape with what you end up seeing in workouts, what the times show, what the measurements show. And when you oftentimes you can do that, you know, when the combine rolls around and you see somebody who maybe scores and they run a little bit, they run the times a little bit quicker in terms of the shuttle or the three cone drill. You can see that quickness, and then when you go back and watch it on tape, you can you can see examples of that. Um, 
I think that in this case, he ran, you know, he had an incredible 20 shuttle and three cone drill for his size. And really for any size back, it was, you know, in, in my estimation of what I think is good enough to be in a starting back, that, those numbers were there. But when you watch it on tape, you, you see you see some of the burst, but you don't see the the change of direction quickness. And to me, that's a very important aspect of running back play mm-hmm. is to be able to get in and out of cuts very fast. And, and it's, it depends on the type of running scheme you have. If it's going to be a zone scheme, you want a back who's going to have that quick change of direction and get in and out of their cuts. And one of the things that you're looking for there is a back who can drop his weight. It's think of it as like sitting in a chair and you see it with wide receivers when they get into a hard break on say a dig route or a, or you know a hitch route or a hook route and with a running back when they're dropping their weight into a jump cut um or a hard lateral cut and with Warren he doesn't really sometimes you see him drop into drop his weight but it's very rarely on his tape most of the time he looks like he's leaning up against a bar stool rather than sitting in a chair so it's like the 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 flexibility and weight drop isn't quite there the explosion out of the break isn't quite as fast um, as what the times show so then the question is okay did he is it something that he can learn because obviously he's doing it in these in these drills and he's able to do it in the drills well Mm -hmm. is that something that he's gonna be able to learn to do on the field more why didn't he get to do it earlier at texas um you know is that because he wasn't working at it as much did the team just kind of give up on the idea of using him as a running back in this area, did they, you know, was, were they just more looking for, you know, some sort of way to get him on the field and, and there was another player out producing him and they felt like that they needed to do that. There's a lot of questions like that with Warren because I think he's a running back. I think he can play that position. Um, and I think that really you could use him in a gap scheme where it's just hitting one crease hard downhill and you could use him more in that regard because he's got the acceleration he ran a 454 at his pro day which was better than the 469 that he had at the combine um and that's the other confusing thing because you you know when you first watch him you you would you always want to kind of not pay attention to what the commentators say but when you're trying to gauge how fast a player is and it's fun to go and you're going back and seeing what his times were you would you would hear these commentators say well you know he's got build-up speed and he's actually faster long speed than he is with acceleration. But then I'd watch his tape and I'd go, he looks like he's accelerating pretty well. It's his, it's his long speed that I kind of wonder about. And then you see the, the combine and, and see what, the, what the, you know, the combine measurements showed there. And it kind of looked that way. But then you see that three-cone drill and you wonder, is he going to be able to change direction fast enough? Um, and to me, that's, that's kind of the issue. And then on top of it, because of the fact that he's a slower runner, he's a big guy, he's not someone that had a ton of production, he's probably going to go later in the draft. So is the team really going to give him a chance to be that guy? I mean, if he were an 1,800-yard producer at Texas for two years in a row, it wouldn't matter if he was, you know, 
it wouldn't matter if there were some real question marks about him. Teams would probably be more inclined to give him a chance to fail because of the fact that he went to a big school, produced well, had that size, had those nice workout numbers um, in so many other ways because there's, it's about risk management for them. And, and lower in the, you know, getting drafted lower at the end of the, you know, end of the draft or not drafted at all, teams may go, well, you know, we'll give him a try to see if he can make the team. And that means either if they think he can be a tight end, they'll let him play that and give him a shot to work into that. And that's going to take three or four more years probably for him to develop along those lines, even though he's an interesting player as a receiver and blocker because he can block at the line of scrimmage reasonably well for a running back as a pass protector. He can slide well. He can deliver a punch. He can stay with the man. Um, but that it's a big difference between pass protection as a – you know, as a running back and then actually a run blocker as a tight end or even a pass protector as a tight end because you're taking out a different class of defender and the techniques that you're going to be dealing with and the techniques that you have to know. And, you know, for him, it would be learning a whole new position. So is he going to get a chance to be the LeGarrette Blunt type of runner? I think he... I think he can be. I don't think he's quite as accomplished footwork-wise as LeGarrette Blunt. And Blunt had much better weight drop. I've always talked about his ability to drop his weight as a massive asset in his game that's undersold and people talked about him as a as a plotter and he was never a plotter. Um so but teams even then, you know, I remember at the senior bowl he was an afterthought, Benjamin. I mean like they literally just we're gonna put him at fullback and then he then they let him run a little bit and he'd break a run like you know, 50 yards, and we just kind of look at each other and start laughing because we all knew he was the best running back on the squad, you know, it, you know, on that roster, but they were kind of punishing him because of the incident he had with the Boise State player. Um, so, it, you know, the NFL is a, an interesting group in that way because, you know, he ended up with the 49ers, got cut, ended up with the Titans, got cut. You know, and then, you know, you saw him in Tampa Bay and he's he's carved out a nice career for himself. Right. I like it. And so I like what you're saying. We're talking about a gap power guy, you know, one crease that can go hit it. Talked about, uh, you know, he can be uh, your sort of a, a powerful back, a guy that you want to use as a running back, despite the fact that he moved around for Texas. One of the things that we wanted to talk about, you know, as far as Philadelphia going running back, it's likely a day three sort of a situation. You know, they're not going to invest highly in that position, we don't think, especially they only currently have one pick, either in day one or day two. And the running back direction that they'd likely go when you look at their depth chart, given the, the receiving ability they get from a Corey Clement or potentially a Danelle Pumphrey, you know, given that zone style of slashing running that you get from a Jay Ajayi, they're losing that power aspect, that, that gap aspect, a short yardage fourth quarter grinder because LeGarrette Blunt has walked in free agency. He's with Detroit now. And so day three targets, this, this a short yardage guy, he can be a physical bruiser between the tackles. Chris Warren maybe fit that mold. Who else do you potentially like there on day three who could Philadelphia be looking at if they're trying to get a LeGarrette Blunt like production on the cheap yeah certainly I think that he's a good match right there because of the fact that he can give you a little bit of everything um in and and he is very powerful and he knows how to use his power he's a guy that when he breaks into the open field he's not going to try and outrun you even though you know, when teams when he sees defenders pursuing him, he tends to slow down to force the defender into his path, and then he can ram into them and knock them mm-hmm. off balance. So he's he's a smart guy in terms of how he uses his skills. Um, 
I would say that other players that are interesting to me, there's a guy by the name of Jordan Wilkins who out of mm. Ole Miss who his pass protection is not good right now. It can be good, but the effort isn't great. And But as a runner, he is skilled in both zone and gap scheme. He is a very smooth, cutting, highly agile back with excellent vision who finds the cutback lanes he's played against top talent he you know and he's someone that can run for power he can run with quick good burst make the first man or second man miss and he he just he's a very polished ball carrier reminds me a lot of guys like arian foster and matt forte and i think that he's a guy who hasn't had tremendous production because this was his first full year i think starting at um you know at old miss but he's someone that you know could probably give you a lot you know for for a little in that regard i think a guy like ryan nall would be interesting yes for, now you're talking my language yeah see there you go and he's he's a guy that's played fullback h-back he he's he's someone that is a running back for sure he's you know he's a combine guy who's certainly done well in terms of his his speed his agility but he also is a guy that has good vision. I think that he would be better in a gap scheme because he's, while he can make some nice cuts, he's a guy that I would rather having him running downhill towards the line of scrimmage and not having to do anything too fancy. And I think that that for him is probably, you know, an area that I would feel good about. Another guy that I that I like that probably isn't going to get a lot of love in this regard, and because you already have Corey Clement and you're looking for more of a big guy. I mean, I guess another big guy would be interesting would be Cameron Petway. Um, I liked Cameron Petway. I think that, you know, he's a little bit on the slower end. And since you said your dad was a, was a Steelers fan, you know, he's kind of got that, he's got the feet kind of like Jerome Bettis in that sense. And he's a bigger dude on who I think, you know, ran fairly tough when he had to play hurt. And I think that he's, he's someone that the ball, Security is going to be a concern for him more than anything, but I like his ability to be able to bounce plays outside. He's a, you know, he's got he's quick footed, but he also knows how to use his strength. He's not Ron Dane, who's trying, you know, a big guy trying to be a scat back. This is a guy who understands his size. I think he's more what people thought Lendale White back in the day was going to be for the Tennessee Titans, you know, but Lendale White was never fast enough to really be the guy that they thought he'd be at USC. Um, And I think that Petway has a chance to be that kind of player. I like it. I wish I could tell you that I uh, I had an impression of Lendo White, but I'm pretty sure I was in diapers when Lendo White was happening. <laughs> but let's you didn't miss much. Yeah, no. Let's move it. Uh, looking wide receiver now. The one I want to pick your brain about. I'm a huge fan. That's Dante Pettis, Washington wide receiver. To me, uh, this should be a consensus top five guy. He's my wide receiver three. I'm really big on the way that Pettis plays. I love uh, polishing his game, versatility to play all the different wide receiver spots. Uh, you add in special team's value consistent hands you know rack ability and then where we really want to talk about is the route running because Pettis I think has the the body type and the athleticism through his frame and then the mental understanding and recognition skills to really be a dangerous route runner I know when you were talking about Pettis you, the the phrase he we used here was efficient stories of route running and and it's always fun to read your work because you have a very uh, organic and authentic way of describing things you know kind of working a lot of of, of your own
own images in there. And so talk to me about the efficient stories of Dante Pettis running routes, because I think I think I, I have a, a general idea what you're talking about, but I'd love to hear it, you know, from the horse's mouth. Sure. You know, I mean, when you talk about route running, route running is essentially storytelling. The wide receiver is trying to get open against the defensive back who is trying to anticipate what the receiver is doing. So, you know, based on a number of factors, the defense the defender has some clues about what the receiver is trying to do. Even so, the receiver has to try and tell him a story to get him to lean in one direction so that he can break open in the other. And sometimes what that means is setting it up in a way, to me it's like either a con, it's either like a, a con or a, or a suspense story. And really both are the same thing because, you you know, a good storyteller is somewhat of a con artist. You want to be able to put him – you want the defender to go, oh, I know this is what you're trying to do. And and part of that con is setting it up to get the defender to think, oh, he's trying to hide the out route from me, and that's what he's going to do. And then it turns out that he's breaking on a dig or a post. And I think that you know that's what, that's what Dante Pettis does really well, is he understands with his stem, the first part off the line of scrimmage, knowing you know what shoulder of the defender playing over top he should be running towards you know how to set up moves with the dip of the shoulders or the dip of the knees and the hips as well as the head and knowing how to bait something so that the defenders really sold on on thinking oh you're going you're trying to hide this now I'm going to jump on that route and bite here and ended up biting in completely the wrong direction. And he ends up turning guys around that way. And that's, you got to do that in a very short space of time because oftentimes you can go to YouTube right now and look at any number of videos of receivers who are, you know, running routes and getting play, getting open one-on-one in practice. But you look at some of the routes and some of the things that they're doing in those routes and it's not very efficient. It's something where you're going, well, you know, those were some fancy moves, but you know he's not going to be targeted by because by the time he actually got open on this route, the quarterback had to look somewhere else. I mean, it was like eight million different moves, you know, to get that way, and it was an elongated story. So with Pettis, I like the efficiency that he has to be able to to understand how to just use the line and lean of his stem, uh, a simple head fake, something to do with you know a jab or stick with his with his leg and he just understands how to tell that story and set everything up in a sophisticated manner that way. And Pettis is, Pettis is one of those athletes that I think I've always valued. And a lot of people look at a wide receiver, one, a primary receiver, and they think of Julio Jones. They think of AJ green. Those are the Michael Irvin back in the day. I mean, they think of big guys who have, at least some level of speed or strength, Randy Moss, as an example. And they they think of those guys are the primary receivers. But when, now that teams are spreading the field more often and there's more receivers on the field and, and you're looking at guys who can also be more efficient route runners who are – you know, run the entire route tree and are and are precise in what they do, and it's not just they're getting their share of fifty fifty balls targeted to them. The, these guys, you know, the the players who are maybe normal sized and they're not, you know, at least six two and two fifteen, they can be five eleven, one eighty one, like you know Antonio Brown, or they can be like Marvin Jones. And speaking of Marvin Jones, that's what Dante Pettis is like. He comes from that tree of receivers who are very flexible 
athletes who have good acceleration, strong change of direction, a decent vertical. They know also how to play physical and go up and win the ball in the air, and they use that flexibility and hand-eye coordination to make, you know, I call it like plastic man-like bending to be able to work around a defender into the target. And Dante Pettis does that extremely well, both as a route runner getting off the line of scrimmage to work under contact or around it. He can he's tough enough to be able to work through some physical coverage and and, and maintain his balance to get open as well as at the catch point. And the, the to me there's like if you're an if you're a an older guy like me, then you grew up watching a guy by the name of John Jefferson with the San Diego Chargers during the Air Coriel years. And he was a thousand yard receiver for a few years and he could make amazing catches, you know, bending his body. He wasn't the fastest guy, but he had great aerial talent and he wasn't the biggest guy either. He was kind of in the mold of, you know, you had Lynn Swan. Then you had a guy like John Jefferson, and I'd say Brandon Lloyd might be the last guy who was kind of in that that class of guys who wasn't a great producer because of things going on. Probably I think probably more off the field in the the numerous places he played. But when he was with the Broncos that one year where he led the league, he, you know you look at the catches that he made, and this is a four seven forty athlete who was still getting open deep at will because of how good he was as a route runner, how quick he was to get on top of people, and the fact that he could make those amazing matrix-like catches in the air. And, you know, to me, Marvin, you know, Marvin Jones is along that line of player. I've always liked him. And then and you look at Dante Pettis, and I think he belongs in that tree of that player style. No, I really like that Marvin Jones comparison because I think one that I hear often for Pettis is TJ Hushmanzada, and I kind of got it, but I never really sat super well with me because I think that, like Marvin, Pettis has that really incredible flexibility through his frame and then concentration uh, you know, at the catch point through the catch point to really correct his quarterback and make a lot of receptions he has no business making. And I, I think that that illustrates something that Pettis brings very well. So I like that Marvin one a lot. I appreciate that. And it's, you know, I mean, I was a huge Marvin Jones fan. And I think, you know, this was a good comparison contrast case study. And, you know, it's a small sample size. And, you know, I'm, it's all anecdotal that I'm giving here. But uh, at that time, people loved, um, you know, who was it? What was that kid's name? He was out of, um, I think it was out of Georgia, Stephen Hill. Stephen Hill mm. out of Georgia Tech yeah, I think, yeah. was a kid. And everyone loved Stephen Hill because he was a combine wonder and he was he was tall and he was fast. But he wasn't, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, people looked at at Marvin Jones and they saw this guy who was, well, he's a secondary receiver. But they only watched the first, the, the second, the, I'm sorry, the last two years of his tape as a junior and, and senior. And I remember watching Marvin Jones as a sophomore and thinking they were using him as a deep threat at Cal. It was really not, and he looked really good. He was a fine route runner and he was getting open deep on a consistent basis well why was he not used that way well keenan allen came to to cal and he became the main guy and so then at the senior bowl i remember going to the senior bowl and thinking i'm looking forward to seeing marvin jones and they do a lot of one of the better 
positions to watch at the senior bowls wide receiver because there are a lot of realistic drills yeah. and a lot of realistic one-on-one situations you can watch and this was a good cornerback class that marvin jones was facing and he beat every single one of them on the first day deep i mean repeatedly he was getting open at will deep and i remember thinking i you know this is the one guy i want to interview you know this this week and just kind of learn a little bit more about him but it was, you know, watching him get open like that and then also seeing him in a sophomore tape, you could tell a lot of people were sleeping on his skills. And it took a while for him to really, you know, break out in, on a level where people can associate with him being a primary guy. And he's not even a classic primary option, you know, the way people look at that, as we talked about earlier. But you can see that when he's paired with a quarterback like Matthew Stafford, who's confident enough to let him go up and win the ball – he can be a highly productive starter for an NFL team. And he's flashed that even beforehand when he was opposite AJ green. And now you look at Dante Pettis and Dante Pettis was, you know, in the shadow of John Ross last year, uh, you know, or two years ago. And, and so now, and a special teams guy, now you're seeing him and he doesn't have quite the quarterback who, you know, in, in Jake Browning, who wasn't really a top notch quarterback to get him the ball in the ways that he's capable but I think that, you know, you put him somewhere with a team like a Carson Wentz where, you know, or you put him on another team where someone's willing to throw the ball up and let him win, you know, in that in that realm. I think that you're going to see a, a lot of strong work from him within you know, the next two to three years. I like it. And I believe it as well. Dante Pettis playing a flag here. But when we turn to Philadelphia. Uh, Pettis is likely out of range, out of shooting distance. Again, this is a day three sort of a proposition. You imagine the top of the depth chart looks pretty good. Alshon Jeffrey, Nelson Aguilar, and then you're assuming that you get uh, good production from the combined efforts of Mac Hollins in his second year, and then Mike Wallace, who was recently brought in from Baltimore. A concern that I've had, which which we don't really talk about a lot, is uh, we get the news after the Super Bowl win that Alshon Jeffrey played the entire season with a labrum issue in his shoulder, and it just adds to the the uh, amazing run this team had and all the adversity they overcame. And it's just another thing for Jason Kelsey to yell about during his post-Super Bowl speech. And it's all wonderful. It's all roses. But Jeffrey was a guy who came in with some bad injury history to begin with. It had been a while since he put together a 16-game season. Uh, what if that shoulder turns out to be a bigger problem? What if that turns out to actually take away some games in the 2018 season? Matt, I'm looking. I'm, I'm on day three. I'm looking for an above-the-rim guy. I'm looking for a a contested catch jump ball specialist. When I get down to the red zone, the Eagles love to use Alshon Jeffrey, use his big frame, get him involved in the back of the end zone. If, if Jeffrey has to take some time off and I want to replicate at least that production inside of the 20, give myself a jump ball guy. Who am I looking at on day three? Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of guys that you can look at for this. And I think, I don't know if he's going to fall to day three, but Marcel Aitman of Oklahoma State is probably going to get more love than day three. But he's a guy that really does a good job of winning the ball at the catch point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have Alan Lazard over at Iowa State, who may also probably be more of a – he might be an early day three guy. Um, but when he plays to the level of physicality that he's capable of, he's also a good a, a good player in that regard. But I think the guy that I would want to take a chance on knowing that I'm not leaning on them to start right away. I'm leaning on them, you know, maybe they'll get use in a red zone manner early on, but they can maybe grow from there. 
I would love to take a chance on Jaleel Scott at New Mexico mm. State because when you look at Jaleel Scott, I know that you know we, we look at the data and we talk about players and their combine scores by percentiles, and we talk about how – you know, this player's in the 98th percentile of NFL players, and this guy's in the, you know, 45th percentile. And when you look at Jaleel Scott, his height, weight, wingspan, his vertical ability is, is actually in the same range as A.J. Green. What's not in the same range of A.J. Green, obviously, was his speed, was his, you know, acceleration and his short area quickness, and then also – you know, the fact that Adrian Green was a very accomplished route runner for his age and, you know, a very tough receiver at the catch point. Now, from what I saw of Jaleel Scott, I saw a lot of moments of inspired moments, you know, on against, you know, defenders going up for the ball above the rim. I'm, I mean, I think he makes some of the most impressive catches that I've seen, uh, you know, from a, a wide receiver in the college game this year who's in this draft class. Um, just wide wingspan, ability to go up one-handed with a guy hanging off of him and to be able to, you know, make that one-handed stab with your arm over your head and do it with, you know, just kind of fingertip catch the ball with one hand and then still have the awareness to keep your feet in bounds. And you see him doing that work over the middle and taking hits. I've seen some evidence of weight drop so that you can see that there's some possibility there for him to develop into more than just a perimeter guy, but a guy who can actually run some decent routes in the route tree with hard breaks. And so when I look at that potential, uh, I think to myself, he went to New Mexico State. Now, if you think about New Mexico State as far as an FBS school, there's, they're a program that's basically like, look, you know, if you're trying to get into the NFL and you're a JUCO guy, you're trying to get into major college football and you're a JUCO star, sure, we'll go after you to see if you can help us out. You know, but when it comes to recruiting, they're not going to – they're not going to be like we're competing with Texas for this player or we're competing with Cal for that player. And they're not going to be, and they're also not a program that goes, Hey, Texas guy who's interested in Texas guy who's interested in Cal. If for some reason you change your mind, you just don't want to play for a big school. We just want to keep reminding you throughout your high school years that we're here. They don't even do that. You know, I mean, there are schools that do that, you know, that that SMU would be a good example of a program that probably does that a good bit. Um, I bet Houston probably does that a good bit. Um, You know, is there like, hey, look, we'll be, you know, I, I hate to say it in such a mean way, but we'll be your sloppy seconds and, you know consider us Mm -hmm. at at that point you know i think new mexico state is kind of not on that level so the reason i'm stating this is that you think about jaleel scott and he probably doesn't have like the top range training in in terms of from a you know training and conditioning standpoint at new mexico state probably the coaching is decent enough but again the amount of time they have the amount of money that's put into that program, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he goes into an NFL camp and makes a lot of gains as an athlete. And yeah. so when you look at the fact that maybe his percentile in his 20 shuttle and his three cone aren't strong, well, that's compared to NFL athletes. It's also compared to guys who I would also imagine that, you know, you go to Alabama or Georgia and you've got, you've, you've got people who are like, look, we can help you you know, perform to the test, you know, and, and, and play to that level and cheat the test so that you can get the best results you can to get, 
drafted highly. And I think that New Mexico State probably doesn't do that. So if you're looking in the window of just NFL players, his percentiles are low at the combine. But I think he can make a lot of that up considering the context of where he played. And if that happens, he might be a real surprise. I buy it. I remember... Yeah, he had a catch against Georgia State in the end zone where I just about lost my mind when I was going through his tape. He had some sort of, I think you referenced the one-handed stab. He made a, he made a catch over a corner that just had me going bonkers. Sort of, get, You watch it back 10 times, even though you've finished evaluating it, you just want to keep watching the play. Yeah, And there's one at Arizona State that's very much like that, that's even better. And there's one at Georgia State in that game where he... He doesn't – I don't think it's ruled a catch, but it's one where he works over the middle and he gets hit like in the small of the yeah. back and bent backwards. And you're like, okay, he almost caught that ball. And the way – he did everything that you wanted him to do but up to the point of actually hanging on to it. And to me, I've seen him make enough catches in that level of in the middle of the field and his ability to bend low and catch the ball. This is a guy that I look at and go, if I'm drafting someone late as a just in case for Alshon Jeffrey, why not draft a guy as a just in case who could be an every down receiver? I'm, I don't want to just draft a guy who I'm like, okay, I can use him in the red zone and that's, and maybe he can be a big slot receiver like Marcel Aitman or Alan Lazard, but why not a guy that, you know, if Matt Collins doesn't work out, if, you know, Mike Williams, they part from, you know, down the line and this guy suddenly gets a lot quicker, you know, and, and plays to his potential. Suddenly you're looking at a guy and you go, wow, wait a minute. You know, this guy could really be our primary starter down the line. And I think that to me as a late round pick where it's cheap like that, why not go for that upside? Why not go for it? Now, we're going to move to tight ends to wrap things up. Uh, I want to, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this young man, Tyler Conklin, out of Central <laughs> Michigan. Conklin, a, a very interesting guy because if you had tried to convince me off of the tape that I saw that Tyler Conklin was going to come out and run an 11 4. 60-yard shuttle, a 4-2-3, 20-yard shuttle. He was going to jump 38 and 120 in the vertical and the broad. I was, I would have reported you to the police. Uh, there's no way this kid is that level of an athlete. I, I didn't buy it whatsoever. And I understand that he had an injury that he was dealing with for all of 2017. And this is, I, I clearly did not understand the extent to which that was affecting his tape. So talk a little bit about the foot and, and, and what that meant for Conklin's tape and then project him forward for me a little bit because if he can put this athleticism on the field with his hands and basketball background very common for tight ends he, he now i'm excited now i'm buying yeah and it's funny because when i was studying tight ends you know throughout the year i mean i don't change my do so, i call them soap opera style rankings which is you know people change them throughout the year and update them and tell you how you know how this guy's moved up or down based on what teams think and all that and i just tend to just keep my rankings to myself until i publish the book so you know, I'm a lot of my rankings change only because I've watched more players or I've seen more tape on the player. And I don't want to sit there and say, oh, he's moved up my board when it was that I only saw three games of him. And now I've watched another six. I mean, what you know, what does that really matter? You know, for me, that's kind of my own personal take on it. So when I looked at Conklin, he was high on my board all year. And I thought, well, it's going to be interesting to see how he does at the combine, because I haven't seen any senior tape yet. This was before the before the combine. I was like, I've seen mostly, you know, his his junior year tape, and I really liked what I saw. This is a guy that could win the ball in the air. He was split outside all 
all the time, and he was beating cornerbacks and getting on top of them early, and he knew how to use his hands and stack, and he had some bend, and he could block as a stock blocker at the very least, and he was pretty adept at that, so I was pretty enthused. So he got hurt the first day, the first play of fall practice. He had a Jones fracture, and that's a pretty serious injury that usually requires months of recovery time. And he got surgery, and he came back week five of the college season. And when you think, well, why did he do that, or how did he do that? And I think the the question is more why than how. I think that Conklin was one of those guys that probably looked around and said, "I'm at Central Michigan." I don't have the requisite height to be a prototype tight end, and I'm going to miss the entire senior year. And NFL teams that were just starting to come around to want to look at me are just going to write me off. So this is my shot. I better come in and at least put in some tape so that they don't think of me as some injured guy who – they they didn't watch at all, and maybe I can play at least well enough that they can I can get a postseason invite and get my name out there and get interviewed and meet with teams, and then I'm hopefully if I can stay healthy enough, I can be healed enough that I show my stuff at the combine, and if I run well at the combine, then I'll get people's attention because I'll go back and look at my tape, and they may go well he he told us that he was hurt and he played all year hurt, which NFL teams love. Because they love the the guys who can who right. can you know do that the old school tough thing so you got that and then they'll go okay well he's given us a reason to look at the junior tape now and then you can kind of see the athletic ability matching up to the to the combine and I think that that's he took that calculated risk where he just decided look I'm going to play through it and hopefully I can play well enough to get that opportunity and he did and so I think that while he wasn't fantastic on his senior tape you can see what you can match all the puzzle pieces together and to me that was very similar to a guy like and it's a different position but Isaiah Crowell of the Jets now but who was with Cleveland, you know, I went, you know, I was working at the University of Georgia and Isaiah Crowell was seen as one of the best recruits they had coming out. And this was before Todd Gurley, before Keith Marshall, before Nick Chubb, before Sony Michelle. I mean, he was he was considered uh, on a level that they were thinking he was going to be the great back. Mm-hmm. And he was and he had a promising start, but he had some issues off the field. He got arrested. He failed some drug tests. He ended up at Alabama State. And one of the things that happened to him that you could almost interpret was, you know, he was at Alabama State with a a former um, wide receiver by the name of Reggie Barlow out of Jacksonville, who was now his head coach. And Reggie Barlow's telling the media during Crowell's senior year, yeah, he's got NFL talent, but I keep trying to tell him that he can't take himself out of games when he starts to get banged up and that he needs to, like, be willing to, you know, do some of that dirty work, um, you know, because the NFL, you're going to be at the back of a depth chart and you can't just be, think you're just going to be the star. And it was, you know, it was kind of a damning, you know, criticism about Crowell's effort. But I thought about that and thought, okay, if I was at the University of Georgia, I got kicked out and now I'm at Alabama State and I know someone's given me good advice to say, dude, you're not going to get drafted. And if you are, it's going to be off of a great combine. So I better be healthy for the combine. And when I do get drafted, I better not be so banged up 
that I can't produce when I'm called upon. And it really, if it weren't for Deion Lewis breaking his leg in the fourth quarter of a like the third preseason game against the Bears, he would have never gotten in the game and shown what he was capable of doing. But the fact, I think he bought his time to say, here, you know, this is what I have to do. And it's a really weird, tough calculation that th- these guys have to face who are at smaller programs. And I think that that fits with Conklin in a sense where he had to kind of go the opposite route, which was instead of preserving himself because he wasn't a known thing that suddenly became unknown, he had to put himself out there. And it's paid off for him, I think, in the fact that he'll probably end up at least earning a, a, a undrafted you know, rookie priority contract, uh, if not a late round pick. And that's Tyler Conklin. That is going to be it for us, Matt, because we have well filled up the time that we get for the Kiston Solak show. But thank you so much. All right. And this has been Benjamin Solak on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. Thank you so much for listening. Mike and Ben back together, regularly scheduled programming for Wednesday and Friday. Uh, thank you so much for listening. At Fly Eagles Fly. Fly.